Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Saturday Morning Rewind. For the safety of you and others, please make sure all hands, feet, and arms remain inside. And please watch your children. And now, let the show begin. Welcome to Saturday Morning Rewind, a show dedicated to the love of animation and feeling like a kid again. So let's go back in time to when cats defended Third Earth. Sword of Omens, give me sight beyond sight. A masked duck protected the streets of St. Canard. I am the terror that flaps in the night. And knowing was half the battle. Yo, yo! Let's go back with Saturday Morning Rewind and your host... Tim Nidell. Hey, what's up, Toonsters? Welcome to Saturday Morning Rewind with your host, Tim Nidell. Make sure to follow me on Twitter. It's at Saturday Rewind. And for today's episode, I'm bringing you a very special October Halloween edition of the podcast and bringing you my interview with John Kassir. John can be heard in many, many cartoons, such as when he took over the role of Buster Bunny later on in the series from Charlie Adler. A little heavy on the entrance, don't you think, Babsy? He was Miko from the Pocahontas Disney animated movie. He was on the Dumb and Dumber cartoon. He was on Johnny Bravo, Buzz Lightyear Star Command, The Looney Tunes Show, and more recently, he can be heard as the voice of Elliot in the Pete's Dragon remake. But for this interview, we primarily just talk about his role as the Crypt Keeper from Tales from the Crypt. Ah, now here is a story you can sink your teeth into. And then we also talk about Tales from the Crypt Keeper, which was the animated series of the show. Greetings friends. But remember to check us out online, SaturdayMorningRewind.com. Follow us and rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And make sure to check out our Patreon campaign if you want to help us out financially. Again, all those links are at SaturdayMorningRewind.com. But all right, kitties, I guess that's about it. So here is my interview with John Kassir. Lean in, Fright fans. I'm going to let you in on the secret. So let's let's start off to get to know you a little bit more. What kind of a kid were you? Were you always in love with horror movies and and, and horror comics, that kind of stuff? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, in terms of Tales from the Crypt, um, I uh, used to collect the comic books. Uh, my grandfather had like a little store uh, as a side business, and there was a rack of comic books. And, um, you know, when my uh, cousins and I would, uh, you know, in the summer, we'd go visit my grandparents. We'd uh, hike our way down to my grandfather's store, and he said, you, we could pick a comic book or, or magazine from the rack. Um, you know, the Tales from the Crypt comic books, of course, were kind of taboo, and they'd be sitting up the top of the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the top of the rack. I'd climb up the rack and get the Tales from the Crypt, sneak off with them. I actually probably even had a few stashed away that were uh, probably very collectible at this point, but I... Um, I think my mom found them and, and um, <laughs> you know, uh, gave them to some kid down the street. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, when I came back after 
getting the part in Tales from the Crypt, I came home looking for them, thinking they would be very collectible, especially since I could sign them. <laughs> oh, it's so true, yes, yes. And uh, and they were gone, and, uh, along with my Hot Wheels and my Matchbox cars, which were all my collectible <laughs> stuff. I was like, were you kidding me? She goes, oh, I gave them... When you were in college, I gave them to some kid down the street. I'm like, no. I, I, I feel your pain. My parents did the same exact thing when I was 19 and I moved away. I was like, you know, I'm, I don't play with them, but it'd be nice to keep them. They're, they're all memories. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and very often, you know, highly collectible stuff, too. Exactly. Um, but uh, I loved, I mean, they had a thing in Baltimore where I grew up. They had a... Uh, uh, in the afternoons, uh, late afternoons, they had something called Twilight Movie. I think it was probably around 4 or 4.30 or something when my mother, in between when I came home from school, my mother was making dinner. So I would sit down and watch whatever they had. And they would play everything from, you know, Dora's Day movies to Mothra, you know. and But they would always show, um, you know, at least, you know, one every couple of weeks or whatever, one of the Universal Horror Monster movies um you know whether it was wolfman or um even the comedies like uh abbott and costello meets frankenstein yeah and these were these were definitely my favorite movies of the time um i had uh remembered ordering from one of the one of the back of some comic book like a six foot cutout of frankenstein that i had in the corner of my bedroom that um because i remember seeing abbott and costello meets frankenstein and they find frankenstein in like a a crate with you know all this packing uh um you know shredded packing material and i was like you can order a frankenstein you know <laughs> so when i found out you actually could order one but it was you know paper cut out and cardboard cut out you know i ordered it and i uh-huh. had it sitting in the corner of my room and uh, i'd wake up in the middle of the night and swear it was coming closer to me but um uh so i you know i, I did love horror I, I don't think i was ever you know, now I've I've grown a taste for you know well when they're well done slasher movies and that kind of thing. But I don't think that was that was really my deal. Uh, although I do remember some of the earlier ones and, and loving taking dates to go see. Uh, you know, like Night of the Living Dead. And, yes, and yes. They, when they you know Dawn of the Dead, they do those as uh, double features and stuff. You know, they they just close the doors and. Um, you know, they either show the William Castle movies, like The Tingler and stuff like that. Oh, and, so good, yes. Yeah, and they did close all the doors, and you know, there'd inevitably be some guy tripping his ass off on LSD, you know, down in the front of the theater, uh. <laughs> screaming at the screen, and people would be laughing at like his ridiculous comments or you know that kind of thing. But um, uh, you know, I loved uh, back then. That was something to get into, you know. No, I wasn't too familiar with the comic series of Tales from the Crypt. Was the Crypt Keeper a prominent role in the comics as well? Oh yeah, he was. You know, there was there were other characters there as well. Um, but the the Crypt Keeper always in the classic form of our show. Um, you know, our show really tried to capture the elements of the comic book in the way that it you know brought it across. And the Crypt Keeper would have um, he'd be up in the corner of you know, some of the little frames of the comic, you know, making his comments and, you know, there'd be a little bubble and uh, he'd be on the cover in little, you know, corners of the cover, um, you know, saying stuff like, hello, boils and ghouls, you know, I mean, that was taken right from the comic book. Nice. Um, so, and uh, he was also um, assisted by the vault keeper 
and uh, a character called the Old Witch. Um, our Crypt Keeper, the way he was designed and um, the look and the feel of him, uh, Kevin Yeager had conceived as kind of a combination of those three characters. Um, he looked more like, uh, I think, the Crypt Keeper in the comic books looked more along the line of, um, you know, an old man in a, in a hooded shroud, you know, something that was that uh, looked a little more human and not dead. Okay. But um, uh, I'm sure he probably was meant to be, you know, probably living dead, but uh, he, he didn't come off quite as much that way. Um, but that whole, you know, comedy tongue-in-cheek idea of him uh, was very much something that I knew uh, I wanted to bring to it when I was when I had the opportunity to audition for it. I was doing another series for HBO called First and Ten, uh, which was about a uh, um, <clears throat> you know football team, and that was uh, HBO's first series. Um, starred uh, O.J. Simpson as the general manager. Really, Delta. Bur- yeah, <laughs> Delta Burke was the owner of the team. She had won a divorce settlement and um, was a pro team called the California Bulls. And over the years, we had all kinds of great people on there. They had all all kinds of great football players that came on each week. And um, and uh, we had you know people like Chris Maloney played the uh, Chris uh, Maloney played the quarterback one se- you know one or two seasons and uh, Jason Begay was one of the quarterbacks for a couple of seasons um that kind of thing but we also would have you know um Ted Hendricks or some you know Joe Namath or Joe Montana or somebody come on and be a newscaster or you know a, a football player or an exec or something like that so the show was full of uh, football and um, I played uh, uh, the Bulgarian field goal kickers. I got Abshkinuski. <laughs> I could kick uh, 60-yard field goals. So I was uh, this little foreign guy who was let loose on America with all this money and fame and uh, no real sense of uh, cause and effect. So, um, <laughs> you know... <laughs> I would, uh, you know, just walk up to two chicks and say, "Hey, I am Zagadevskiniski. I play for the California Bulls. I fuck you both, yes." And they get a drink <laughs> in my face. I'd be like, "You love me," you know. So it was a, it was a really fun character, and I and um, I had also, uh, you know, not so many years before, had won Star Search as a stand-up comedian. Yeah, I saw that, that. Yeah, that kind of came to me in an odd way. Um, where I was doing an off-Broadway musical uh, starring myself along with Scott Bakula and a guy named Jerry Colker who wrote the piece. And uh, it was uh, Think Dream Girls for stand-ups. It's a musical, three stand-ups uh, alone. They're not so good together. They're, they're, they're a big hit, um, you know, in their whole life, uh, uh, you know, getting the spoils of Hollywood, going from New York uh, in these small clubs to Hollywood. And it was a big hit off Broadway, and I played a very dark, kind of untethered uh, comic, kind of in the vein of a of um, of an Andy Kaufman kind of character. And uh, it it launched a lot of uh, my career for me. That people from Star Search in their first season saw me in the show and asked me to come on as a stand-up comic. And I said, you know, I'm not really a stand-up comic. It's the part I'm playing in the show. And they said, well, you can win a hundred thousand dollars. I'm like. Oh! 
look, I'll do it. <laughs> Did I tell you about my stand-up uh, material uh, <laughs> that I'm writing right now? <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, so I went on and I won uh, Star Search uh, doing bits that were would include, like, I do The Wizard of Oz in two and a half minutes, or I do, you know... Um, you know, a salesman sending and selling a three-in-one machine that I would become the machine and stuff like that, and so kind of like Ernie Kovacs kind of stuff. If you know Ernie Kovacs yeah, from I back do. in the day, yep. and um, <clears throat> you know, so people knew me as this guy who did all these voices and characters and stuff. So HBO were like, "Hey, you know, we should have John come down and audition." You know, for Kevin, um, Kevin Yeager was having the auditions at his studio. Um, you know, and you got to see the Crypt Keeper and that kind of thing. And I remember going down and seeing all these other, you know, you know, some of the people were, you know, established actors and they had voiceover guys and they had some stand-up comics. And they probably had about, when I was there, probably about, you know, a dozen, 15 different, um, you know, really talented people down mm-hmm. there. And I, I saw them looking at the copy, reading it, going, careful what you ask for you may get it you know and they're thinking you deliver this crap is like you know they didn't get it but having you know grown up with the comic books and that kind of thing i was like you guys don't get it he loves saying this you know Uh loves saying Uh so you know and from what i saw physically of the character um you know i went in to kevin's office where he had a little uh, makeshift recording set up for me to record with. And, um, you know, I started entertaining him as the grip keeper and some of the copy they had written and then, uh, improvising a little bit on my own. And, and then I found myself as he was getting into it, I found myself laughing at my own jokes, uh, you know, as the crypt keeper uh-huh. and then just breaking into this cackling, you know, Margaret Hamilton from the wizard of Oz laugh, you know, and he was just like shaking his head, going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, let's give, give me more," you know. And the next day, he had me doing it for Joel Silver and 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 um, uh, Richard Donner in their office. Wow! And uh, they were like, "Oh, we love this. This is great. We'll see you on the set," you know. And that was the rest was history with that. So, um, you know, it was uh, a lot of my love for it, and also some you know strange circumstances that brought me there. Um, you know, you do a, you work in this business for, uh, in my case, 36 years, uh, supporting myself as an actor. And, <clears throat> you know, if you have one thing that people even remember, I mean, I've done a, a number of TV series that you've probably never even heard of, including my own kid show on the USA network called Johnny time, which was, <laughs> uh, really, really great and really a lot of fun to do, but short lived. What year was that? Um, um, uh, 97. Okay. Okay. So I would have yeah. been in high school then. Yeah. It was, it, it actually wound up being like a, a show that was, that went over really big with kids and stoners. It was, it was, kind, of a, <laughs> it was kind of a psychedelic kid show that uh-huh. I did for the USA network. Um, it was going to be the flagship for their children's programming on Saturday and Sunday mornings. And, um, they wound up with a legal battle over who owned the network um, between two different studios, and the studio that I came in with was not the one that that was that was winning that legal battle. <laughs> so they didn't they didn't uh, 
they didn't have really any money to create any children's programming other than what they had already shot of my show. So we went up like the only kids show on the USA wow. Network. So we were the lead into the WWF on Sunday mornings. So <laughs> wow, interesting. <laughs> we wound up being this really <laughs> crazy kid show. It's like TV Guide, you know, featured us in their in their you know their yearly children's programming guide is like the be- your best kid show on TV and that kind <laughs> of thing. But you know, you're not going to without a block of kids programming, you're not going to really yeah. get a lot of attention exactly. for it. Exactly. So, um, every once in a while, somebody will write me on Facebook or something about how they love Johnny Time and where they can they get copies and stuff, and how they they had recorded it and their kids are addicted to it and that kind of thing. It was a it was a really really great show. I got to hire all my friends and you know I played all the characters except the kids that I would pull through the TV set that would be on my show. But um, it was uh, it was you know just had a real psychedelic kind of feel to it and. Um, uh, I think it could have been, you know, it could have been like a, you know, the next Pee Wee's Playhouse or something if it had, yeah, know, uh, gotten its light. But I should probably put it on YouTube. Oh, that point. would be amazing! I would love to see that. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty wacky, uh, pretty wacky show. Um, but I think Mike Myers with his own kid show, you know, that kind of <laughs> feels good. Nice. Yeah, but. Um, so, you know, th- that's the kind of stuff that I got to do uh, over the years. And here, you know, Tales from the Crypt is the thing that people have still have gravitated back towards and that still has a audience. And, um, you know, for years uh, after Tales from the Crypt was, was off the air, people were still watching it. But I thought it was still just the adult audience that originally had seen the no, show. No, no, no. And, you know, didn't realize till I started, you know, being, you know, asked constantly to come to some of these horror conventions, um, which I love going to just for my own uh, enjoyment of the of the whole scene. Um, you know, how how many kids grew up with Tales from the Crypt? Because uh, if you had asked me if kids were watching it when it was originally on HBO with all the nudity and the language and the gore and everything, uh. I'd be like, no. Way, but I was wrong. <laughs> you know, I was completely wrong. They, they were all watching it. Yeah, I was. I was actually nine when it premiered. And uh, oh. I, I here's my story though. I was terrified of the Crypt Keeper. I remember there's two things I was afraid of as a kid. First thing was Robert Stack's voice from Unsolved Mysteries. I was terrified <laughs> when I heard his voice. And the second thing was the Crypt Keeper. So That's you terrified great. me for at least a good couple years. I think I started watching it. I want to say when I was maybe 11 or 12. Perfect. So it would have been like 91, 92-ish. It's so funny how certain kids just immediately know when something has kind of like a tongue-in-cheek aspect to it and other kids are just like terrified of it. Yeah. You know? I think my mom is the one that made me scared because I remember the first time I saw your character on TV where we're sitting in the living room and a commercial came on or something came on with the Crypt Keeper and she like jumped up with a blanket and just like covered the TV so I wouldn't see it. That's first <laughs> my first exposure to your character. <laughs> that's funny. Well, you know, I mean, that's how people reacted to the comic book back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, exactly. You know, the reason there are, you know, ratings on comic books is because of the tales from the EC comics that William Gaines had put out there, including Tales from the Crypt. And um, but it's funny. I get all kinds of stories from it's the only show that my whole family sat down and watched together. Wow. To my parents would punish me and make me watch it if I was bad. <laughs> to 
my parents wouldn't let me watch it if I was bad, to, um, you know, my parents wouldn't let me watch it, but I spent weekends with my grandma, so we watched it together. Um, I mean, I get all these stories, and, you know, people watched it, and, and a lot of the people were like, this is what introduced me to horror, this is what got me into horror, and, you know, your voice, yeah, you know, sometimes I couldn't watch it, but I'd listen to your voice in the background, and it would just, you know... And, you know, obviously a lot of people did a lot of great work on that show. Oh, yeah. They got a lot of favors. It was a very expensive show to do, which is probably why it's not been put, it wasn't back on the air, yeah. uh, you know, uh, yet. Um, and, you know, they got a lot of favors. They got a lot of stars. You had the biggest producers in Hollywood producing it, so they could get a lot of favors. And... Um, you know, this just they just really went way out of their way to make sure that it that it had stories out of the comic book, was shot like the frames of the of what it looked like in the comic book. You know, they got great directors, great actors and the whole deal, but I'm I'm kinda like one of the ones that get to enjoy the benefits of it uh of the the memory of it because I was the pitch man. Yeah. I was the guy that made it different from the other anthologies. You know, the Crypt Keeper was you know, I mean, Tales from the Crypt was like a roller coaster ride, and the Crypt Keeper was kind of like the the ride up to the top before it drops you down. You know, and so um, he had that kind of titillating aspect to it, and let you know that this was supposed to be fun, and that you were going to have a good time, and you could laugh at it, and and you know, um, even if it scared you, it was still for fun. You know that this is this was a. Um, a titillating candy bar, if you will, but, um, you know, they don't, they didn't keep the rights because they never, I don't think they realized that there was an audience that was, that it had gained, uh, from many years ago that were now old enough to, to want it, you know, to pay for it, to be yeah. on TV. So, you know, the rights were sold by the Gaines family to TNT and, uh, this version they want to do with M night Shyamalan, which, won't include or can't include um, me or the Crypt Keeper that I voiced because that was created specifically for our version. Wow. It was, was, uh, you know, um, unless they were willing to license it to them or something, which I don't think they would be, you know, because I'm sure they'd love to have the show back, you know, the licensing back to put it on the air. But, um, you know... I'm I'm just a uh, you know a part of it, but you know uh, I'm a lot of the fan base and people associate me as Tales from the Crypt, which is kind of fun. You know, I mean it's not something they ever bargained for. You know, I've, I've, I was even after winning Star Search, I was kind of even though I knew that you know and enjoyed a certain amount of celebrity because I knew it was important to getting work. Um, it wasn't something that I worked that hard at, you know, I mean, we didn't really have social media back then. You had to hire publicists mm-hmm. and they were very expensive and that kind of thing. And I just, you know, was happy to, to continue to work and make my, you know, a, a really nice living as an actor. And then of course, as you get older, you realize it's like, okay, why did I just lose that part to Scott Bayo? Okay. Well, cause he was <laughs> on, he's better known than I am. You know, it's like, that's that's fine, and Scott Bayo's great, and, you know, he should get parts and that kind of thing, but it's like, you know, come on. Um, but that's that's just the way it works. Now, of course, social media has, you know, any project that I do, you know, I wind up having to, you know, I 
feel like I bore people by putting my stuff up on social media, but the fact is, is you're your own Nielsen ratings now. You have to do it. Exactly. They expect you to do it. Yep. Some of the projects that I worked on have it in your contract. They expect you to be tweeting and, you know, putting it on social media and that kind of thing. And the fan base is really generous about being involved and, and they enjoy sharing the ride with you, you know, right now, um, as we're recording this, uh, um, uh, some uh, the audience may remember that I, I would have just have done uh, Pete's Dragon, yes, the yes. voice of uh, Elliot the Dragon, and um, you know, and it's such a beautiful film. I'm so happy, so happy and proud to be on it. Out of you know, because you get you know, over your career, you do a lot of good good stuff, but most of it's crap. Just <laughs> the nature of you know what gets made. And um, so when you're attached to something that's really wonderful, you, you know, you put it out there. And people have been going in droves to go see it, you know, that know me and, and, uh, or, or fans and that kind of thing, and sending me great comments about how much they love the movie and about how great it is and, and uh, that kind of thing. So I get to actually share it with a bunch of people that I know and a bunch of people that I don't know who are kind of like my social media friends. And um, so I enjoy that aspect of it. It's a little different than, you know, um, past years when I, you know, when I was younger, and that was probably the meat and potatoes and the salad days of, well, more the salad days of my, uh, my youth, my, um, you know, my career where I was working like nonstop in so many different projects and, um, you know, didn't even have time to promote them. I just had time to shoot them and do them, you know. Now, tell me about your version of Elliot in the uh, New Pete's Dragon. What approach did you take on giving him the voice he has? Um, you know, I had to take the approach off of what they had created because um, very often, like when I did the voice of Miko the Raccoon and Pocahontas and that kind of thing, you, you're really going off of storyboards and the director and the you know, the creators and that kind of thing, the information that you're, you're giving them and you're creating <laughs> this, um, uh, you know, you're creating this, you know, raccoon in the, in, uh, with the idea of, you know, they're talking you through it. Okay, he's running, he goes into a log, he comes out of the log, he looks down and he's over a body of water. As he's going down halfway, he's fighting his way down. Then he realizes, oh, this water's going to be fine. He goes into a swan dive. He pops, you know, and you start, he spits water out. You know, you do the, you do this as uh, as an actor in a room and they're, shoot, they're even shooting video of you so they can see how you're moving and that kind of thing mm-hmm. to incorporate in it. But in the case of something like Peach Dragon where they've, you know, these uh, incredible animators have... Um, made this uh, beautiful dragon that marries really well with the live action of the movie. Um, I had the luxury of, of going in and seeing what they had done. Uh, it wasn't all finished, but a lot of it was. And so I had to create sounds and emotions and try to bring to life the vocal aspects of a, uh, what was already physically realized um, on screen. So I got to work a lot with the editor as well as, the, you know, David Lowry, who was the director, but um, a lot with the editor who knew what she needed to fill every moment to make the character relate to the little boy who had, you know, who was probably playing to a tennis ball on a pole at the time mm-hmm. when he shot it. And so you have to bring this other element to it that brings the actual 
you know, animated dragon that wasn't there while the kid was shooting it, relating to the way the kid was acting as well. So, um, you know, almost bringing some human qualities to some animal kind of noises. Um, so when we first started doing it, I was trying to do some big sounds because, you know, it was a 20, 25 foot creature, um, in the reality of the movie. And, um, and then I realized, you know, so over the the years of doing, game, game, you know, interactive games and that kind of thing where I do a lot of animals and voices and creatures and that kind of thing that, you know, when you try to go low with your voice, you know, it kind of flattens out. You don't have as much variety to it. So uh, my idea was to do it in my own vocal range and have them lower it and add bass to it to, to bring it to the size of the dragon because there's no way I could have, any human could have done that. Uh, vocally, so that I could bring a lot more musicality and variety and emotion to the voice. So it was fun. I get, you know, some of the stuff that I did was low, some of the stuff that I did was high, but then when they, you know, married it to the picture and added, uh, you know, the, the beauty of, uh, you know, whatever kind of sound system they used, Dolby or whatever it was, um, to it, it really, uh, I mean, it's really kind of earth shattering, you know, it's really kind of cool. Yeah. So, um, you know, plus it, it was able to really bring across, you know, the emotion and the and the feel of what I got to do. So, you know, what was what started out as a, you know, as a little um, session or two turned into, uh, you know, 10, 12 sessions, uh, you know, um, in this on the soundstage, um, giving them as many different versions of what I could do with it as possible so that they could choose from it and add to it and use it in other places and that kind of thing so um you know it was it it was it was technical but also a lot of emotional and physical work to bring it across Mm -hmm. and it it really came across great they did such a beautiful job crafting this movie you know it has the feel of a of um you know an instant classic disney movie but at the same time like as a you know, if you brought, a parent brought their kid to it, they wouldn't be sitting there going, "Okay, when is this movie going to be over?" You know, my kid's enjoying it and loving it, but yep. you know, what about me? Yep. This movie's for everybody. You know, it's it's funny. One of them, one of my fans wrote is like, "Okay, so uh, I was had a really hard time not crying in the uh, touching moments and that kind of thing. My 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 child was bawling, and then I looked over to my buddy who's really macho sitting next to me on the left, and he was he had his handkerchief out, was weeping." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's perfect, it's right? So you know, good. and he goes, and we laughed through it, we cried through it, and the whole thing, and the relationship between he and Pete were really great, and all that stuff. And that's really that's all you can ask for when yeah. you're trying to make a good movie is for people to take the ride and believe it, what they're watching. You know, if if they're in and out of it, then you've not done your job. If they're in it and they're believing it, and and other things I loved about this movie, um, having shot it in New Zealand, uh, where they made it look like, you know, the uh, Pacific Northwest here in the United States, um, was really great to shoot it on locations instead of making it look like um, a bunch of CGI backgrounds and that kind of thing. Yeah, I completely um, agree with that. Yeah, I mean now they're able to bring make the dragon look so real with with natural backgrounds that they don't have to you know, put unnatural backgrounds to make the, the creature that's forward look real. It was pretty amazing. When I worked on Jack the Giant Slayer, it was, uh, you know, I mean, I was amazed by what they did, um, bringing these giants to life, and that was all mocap. 
so we you know we were in those those funny suits with uh-huh. all spots all over our face and stuff and I mean that's hard work. That's that was a lot of fun work. I mean I got to work with Bill Nye, you know, which is you uh, know, a wonderful British actor. Wow, yeah. People were like, Bill Nye the science guy. Like, no, not Bill <laughs> Nye the science guy. Bill Nye like, from you know Love Actually and all the, all these great movies. You know, this incredible British actor. You know, playing these two-headed giant together. And um, we had an amazing time in these ridiculous suits, but we had a lot of fun uh, bringing that to life. And it's a very expensive process for them to bring entire an entire world and all those creatures to life. Um, you know, it took them a year of uh, you know work and um, of intricate work and and uh, you know a two hundred million dollar budget to realize an entire world <clears throat> um, that has real locations married to fake location. You know, CGI locations to with real characters and CGI characters it's that's no small feat it takes like a you know a great director like Brian Singer to bring that to life and to um, you know have an incredible team of people with a lot of money to make that you know come to life and you can make that as real as you want to make it if you have the money to do it at mm-hmm. some point you just can't spend any more money on it you know in certain parts of it you're like oh that didn't quite look finished you know <laughs> Um, not that that movie had that, but a lot, you know I've seen that in some of the movies. But this movie was done on location with a sixty-six million dollar budget, which sounds like a lot of money, but it, in comparison, not. Yeah, nowadays um, it's not. Yeah, and uh, David Lowry, who comes from independent filmmaking, you know, bringing such a personal touch to it. So I was I was pretty proud to work on that, and I, I, I spent a lot of time, you know putting putting it out there for people to come see it and, and wanting people to see it just because I, I, I knew that they would enjoy it, you know? Mm-hmm, exactly. Now, I wanted to close real quick on, in 1993, they created the animated series Tales from the Crypt Keeper. What are your thoughts about that process? Were you kind of skeptical when they announced they're going to make it a kid's version of it? Well, you know, it's funny because I had been saying to them that they should do a live-action kid's version you know, where nobody dies, but it's, you know, I said, look, you know, kids, I love this stuff as a kid. And the comic books were originally for kids, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like, you can make a kid's version of this, you know, with a Crypt Keeper and, um, you know, he introduces and the, and the actors in it are kids and that kind of thing. And they're like, nah, too scary. They won't let us do it. They'd never let us do it. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and they go, okay, well, we're going to do a cartoon version of it. Um, and, you know, of course, I came to the studio and they wanted me to tone it down, you know, because they were afraid of scaring kids, you know, they wanted to appeal to kids that wanted to watch it but weren't afraid of it. But, you know, like we were saying earlier, there's those kids that are afraid and then there's, there's kids that, you know, get the, the comedy of mm-hmm. it. And, you know, the animation and the colors were very different than what you'd, you know, would have seen. Of course, I grew up on Merry Melody and, and Looney Tune cartoons, which yes. were so fluid and that kind of thing in this this had more of the feel of a Scooby-Doo uh, kind of thing, which I loved. But at the same time, you know, being a fan of animation is just, again, it's, it's, it takes a lot of money to make those fluid kind of cartoons as opposed to this. But the, you know, the marriage of colors and, and the way that they drew the characters, like a comic book and that kind of thing, made it really special. And um, so it was, you know, we did them fast. It was fun to do, but at the same time, it, it was kind of like a held back version of the Crypt Keeper and a held back version of what they were doing. And then, of course, 
television came out with R.L. Stein's Goosebumps, you yeah. know, which was a live-action yeah. version. <laughs> yep, I was going to say that. It's just like it's a kid's version of it. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah, and I was like, I told you. You guys missed the boat. I told you. And, you know, but they, they swear that they, the Crypt Keeper himself just would have been too scary for kids, you know. Perhaps. But um, <clears throat> here you and I know all these years later with all the fan base that are now, um, you know, anywhere from their from uh, 20 to, you know, uh, 50 that were, you know, teenagers, adults, kids, you know, whatever, um, uh, that fan base, plus the fan base that were adults at the time, yep. that they're all really passionate about it and that the Crypt Keeper is, you know, there's little kids that came up to me and they're, I mean, you know, adults now that came up to me and said when they were a little kid, you know, you know, the girl would say, you know, my family teased me because I used to say the Crypt Keeper was my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Have I got a b- for her? <laughs> oh, man, I love that. So do you have anything you want to promote, like any Twitter or Facebook or anything? Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm on, uh, Twitter under John Kassir, J-O-H-N-K-A-S-S-I-R, and also on Facebook is John Kassir, uh, J-O-H-N-K-A-S-S-I-R. I'm on Instagram with the same name. And, um, uh, you know, I, uh, Facebook, uh, I see everything that comes on there. Um, I have, you know, I have my full 5,000 people, but you can still follow me and, and you'll get all my posts and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, as people drop out, I add other people, that kind of thing. But uh, nice. they don't, unfortunately, don't give you the ability to, to add everybody. Yeah. I got a couple thousand people that have wanted to become friends with me on Facebook. I should I should do another fan page as well where they can just um, also follow. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just, I'm, you know, it's like I'm not very tech savvy and to spend my time doing that is, is uh, I'm, instead I'm trying to do as many good projects as I can for the fans to enjoy. Um, and, but sooner or later I'll get around to it. In the meantime, just follow me there and, uh, and get in touch with me on, uh, Facebook or Twitter or send me some cool photographs on Instagram. John, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a huge honor. Big fan of your work. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. Yeah. Can I have you close the episode out as the Crypt Keeper? Hello, kitties. This is John Kassir, the voice of the Crypt Keeper. And you're listening to Tim Nidell on Saturday Morning Rewind. <laughs> Rewind. Thanks for listening to Saturday Morning Rewind. Please check them out on Facebook and Twitter. And that's all, folks.